Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WAB in Atlanta, I'm Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. As a nation of immigrants, America is enriched by its many diverse cultures, and our spoken language is enhanced by emigrants sharing theirs as well. Today, we'll hear about Honey on the Page, Yiddish children's stories from Emory University Professor Miriam Udell. First, dementia as a theme for dance seems an unlikely choice, but Tara Lee, the resident choreographer of Terminus Modern Ballet Theater, has taken on that challenge beautifully. Together with her partner, the multimedia artist Joseph Gway, she's created a film called The Poet. Choreographer and filmmaker join us now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you, Lois. Dementia is horrible for those suffering from the affliction and heartbreaking for their loved ones. Tara, what inspired you to create this piece about a man struggling with dementia? Well, the topic is close. It's close to my family. And so it has a special resonance in my everyday life. And so to approach it through through dance was a big question for me. I have to admit, I, I hesitated to do that at first. And it was actually through conversations with Joseph that I felt a little more confident and a little bit more reassured that that was the right direction and probably the most elevated um, thing I could do to approach um, something that meant that much, you know, to, to do something that meaningful. Yeah, and Joseph actually encouraged me to, to go for it. I, I wasn't sure. <laughs> well, it's gorgeous. Thank you so much. The film showcases the relationship between a father suffering from dementia and his daughter taking care of him. John Welker performs the role of the father, and Rachel Van Buskirk dances the role of the daughter. They're both very fine actors, too. As the film progresses, we see the father weakening and increasingly confused by his memory loss, and his daughter increasingly saddened by that. 
How did you work with them to demonstrate such an authentic version? Mm. Well, it happened in stages. There was a lot of collaboration between the three of us, John, Rachel, and myself. And we basically just talked out loud, scene by scene. Um, I had some structure in my mind, of course, um, in terms of the story, the order of events, and what I wanted to portray. The big question was, how do you express the condition in a way that is authentic without using words. <laughs> um, we were doing it obviously through dance and through gesture for the most part with some chosen voiceover with poetry, but that was the big question. How do you express that? How do you express the subtleties of that and the nuances of that and the, you know, all the emotional waves of it? So it, it took uh, several rehearsals to layer all those different important aspects of it. And of course, with John and Rachel, who are so, they're such artists that are so perceptive and sensitive and they can really project all those different shades um, with a hand gesture or a look or a contact with hand on a shoulder, things like that. We could really show a lot and now, and of course exploit the genre of film to show all those little things that we wouldn't be able to do necessarily in a theater. I realize that dance is very abstract and meant to be seen, but I was hoping you could describe the scenes of dancers wearing white that are woven throughout the story. I was especially fascinated with the extended ensemble dance with six people. Is that meant to be the winds of heaven that the poet recites? That is the visual manifestation of our poet Charlie's imagination and his inner reality that he can still experience. In the depth of my soul, there is a wordless song, a song folded by truth and repeated by dreams. When I look into my inner eyes, I see the shadow of its shadow. When I touch my fingertips, I feel its vibration. When the gentle fingers of music knock. When the gentle fingers of music knock. And so through his poetry and through his daughter's imagination, we kind of dive into these worlds of fantasy and where there's kind of endless possibilities. And of course, through dance, we can really show that. And through these amazing dancers, we can really show that. We can show the breadth and depth of what's possible in imagination, you know? Yeah, I, I just wanted to show that his reality is just as real as any other reality, you know? And it's through his art and his, his work that we, we go through these adventures with him, you know? And Joseph, how do you capture that interiority of Charlie's character? Well, it, it was amazing to work with John and, and Rachel. And, you know, typically with ballet, the movements have to be quite big because it, they're on stage. And with the way that we shot this, we wanted the camera to be almost 
another character and to be on the stage during every dance move. And so it was beautiful to watch John get quieter and quieter with his movements and almost everything became so subtle with, with what he would do. And it would become more powerful because we're used to seeing, you know, things get more theatrical in a way on stage as bigger movements happen. And um, in this case, you know, uh, like Tara said, even the putting a, resting a hand somewhere on a shoulder or a slight eye movement could just level you with motion. So it was really, really incredible to be a part of that process. Mm. Please tell us about your choice of poetry. It's from works of Khalil Gibran that are quoted in the film. Why did you want to use Gibran's poetry? I was familiar with his poetry kind of on and off in my life. I remember probably somewhere in my early 20s, I maybe came across a passage and it it did connect in in a pretty profound way. I came back to it again recently, kind of considering how to incorporate some excerpts from the prophet into a, into a dance piece. And um, the language he uses is so unapologetically romantic and spiritual and big. He talks about big things and it's big language. It's so spiritual and yet it's not specific. I think it's, it's still very universal. And I feel like it was the perfect type of language to connect, to be our poet's language, because if you're, if you're going through something like dementia, where perhaps details start to fade, you know, memories, identities of people start to fade, what can still connect? I think things become bigger. I think the more important things start to come into focus. And so that language seemed to be correct. Like what, what do we remember at the end of all of this? What's important? What comes, what comes to the surface of what we should remember? And uh, I feel like his language really tapped into that. Yes, I should have mentioned that the father performed by John Welker is a poet and we see him writing in his notebook as well as hearing him in the voiceover. Let us follow the footprints of spring into the distant fields. Hear the laughter from the colorful field of the spirit. your encounter with the poetry of Khalil Gibran? Well, when Tara first started reading some of the poems to me, and I was familiar with his writings also, you know, I immediately kind of started pushing her towards, okay, how can this dive more into a personal journey that I was sort of witnessing her taking place with the story? And a long time ago, I worked, I did a project called Memory Portraits, where I'd, I had people film little clips of like their memories. And that's when we started kind of leaning the story into how can this poet, you know, maybe be losing his memory or how are these poems bringing his memory back sometimes? So suddenly we found that, or I watched Tara take this piece into a whole nother direction and I think rarely do artists put 
themselves into their work in a way. Really? Every time I watch something that Tara creates, there's an entire storyline of her personal journey at that exact moment in the piece. Whether people know that or not, it completely reflects what she's going through at the time she's creating it. I don't see that a lot in art. I think people maybe are trying to put out there what they think is timely or what they think other people want to experience, but I don't see a lot of artists create their exact moment of life that they're expressing. They may linger on a story that they captured long ago and keep following that track, but that's the beauty of Tara's work that I've always loved is that, especially being as close to her as I am, I'm watching her daily life come out of these little stories and they change from, you know, every year when she's making a new one, that that story changes. So this one was really hard to watch at times because of that. And then also really powerful and liberating and beautiful. And so I was very honored to be a part of helping to translate what I was watching too with her life. So so the expression labor of love has multiple meanings in this instance. <laughs> Tara, I'm with you about being unabashedly romantic, and I'm not about to apologize <laughs> for it. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes, speaking with choreographer Tara Lee and filmmaker Joseph Gway about The Poet, their dance film for Terminus Modern Ballet Theater. I was thinking about the poems in particular that must have spoken to you as a dancer. The words, and let the winds of the heavens dance between you. I mean, the very mention of dance is there. And then music plays such an important role. Charlie's character, the poet, recites more than once in the depth of my soul, there is a wordless song. Mm. You were able to commission original music by A.D. Kurtz. Would you discuss the role of music here? Yes, that, that was an um, incredibly important part of this project. A.D. Kurtz, also known as Andy, a fantastic composer that started working with us at the very beginning of the year. And he's able to create these really amazing emotional worlds through his, his music. So it was the perfect, perfect match for this project. And music is so important to this topic because I see this um, in my personal experience, how much music triggers connection and people going through memory loss, dementia, and how music, the memories of music, of music that you've, the soundtrack of your life seems to stay in a part of your brain that doesn't go away as, as uh, quickly as some short-term memories do. So music tends to stay, and the, the love and the memory of music. So we use that a lot as an important character in the story where Charlie hears a piece of music that he remembers and loves, and instantly he's connected and he's present. And that brings us into the, you know, the first big dance poem where the dancers kind of manifest that.
and so sweeping and wonderful. It was perfect to choreograph to and to bring us into that world where we almost forget what was happening on the outside story of you know him losing his memory and forgetting this and that. And we get lost in the world of that moment for a few minutes. But as important as is that scene, where the daughter puts the LP on the old-fashioned record player <laughs> and her father reawakens to the music of his youth. The overall soundtrack, the music aside from that scene, really moves along the narrative. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. It's actually telling the story. I told Andy one of the first compositions that he sent to me it was a shorter one. He just, he gave me a sample of what, what he was going to be doing. And I said, Andy, I hear the whole story in this short composition of four and a half minutes. The whole ride is there. So then our job from th that point was to stretch out moments to figure out what we wanted to exploit in terms of, okay, I want this, this particular section and I want to make that a whole dance section for six minutes and that kind of thing. But he really tapped into that and that was through really sensitive conversations between the two of us and him really understanding and listening and understanding the, the whole uh, journey that we were, we were taking with this. Yeah, I remember the first, when he sent you that first track and you came running into the room to play it for me. And I, I closed my eyes for a second to listen to it. And then I immediately was like, this sounds like it should be in an Oscar nominated war a saga <laughs> it's just his music is so the scope giant. of it yeah it's just massive yeah it's just it's massive and if anything it was like okay how can we find parts of this to take back down a bit because he he is the, the capabilities that he creates are just yeah, incredible mm -hmm. loved about his mixture of styles or his drawing from multiple styles without any worry about classification or categories. I mean, the way it's scored it is similar to Western classical symphonic music. There's gorgeous solo cello. But that recurring theme has a bluesy effect mm. absolutely yes. so i thought he was drawing in blues and a kind of minimalism with a repeated patterns common to music by philip glass it's just beautiful absolutely yes he had all of that at his fingertips all these different worlds and genres and that's what was so appealing about working with him because i think we both agree as artists that we didn't ever want to box ourselves in with saying okay this is going to be classically based ballet or classically based music we just we just wanted to speak we wanted to communicate and whatever was able to kind of help us facilitate that we wanted to rock and roll with that Fun. well and your choreography in the piece is the same i mean it has classical ballet it has modern movements it runs the entire scope also which is so so powerful oh joseph i am so glad you brought that up because music is 
much more to my wheelhouse. That I can speak of with knowledge. I admire dance, but I was almost shy to <laughs> ask. You're a modern ballet theater company, but they're dancing on point, and their movements seem very evocative of classical ballet. Will you tell us about your reasons and process there? Well, because we're representing three or four different poem worlds with these dance sections, I wanted to kind of have a different uh, language dance-wise for each one of them. So the first big one is on point. So there's, I always kind of honor some of my classical roots because I love the long, lean lines and the clarity and the specificity and athleticism of classical ballet. But I'm only fascinated by it nowadays in terms of how I can morph it and distort it and change it and stretch it. So you'll see both in that, you know, and then of course, there's a big section where they're actually barefoot on grass. And um, I wanted to have a completely different feeling, a more sensual kind of uh, sensory feeling in that poem to show that the memory, sensory memories can be really vivid for someone with dementia. Yeah, so I, I, I love both worlds. I love all worlds of, of dance. And I just wanted to be as fluid as possible between all, all the styles that I feel comfortable with. And the dancers can do anything. <laughs> So it's, uh, it's wonderful to have, to have all those options. Choreographer Tara Lee and filmmaker Joseph Gway. In just a moment, we'll return to more of our conversation about their new film, The Poet, for Terminus Modern Ballet Theater. You're listening to WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with choreographer Tara Lee and filmmaker Joseph Gway about The Poet, their new film for Terminus, Modern Ballet Theater. There's a part in the film where we see dancer John Welker from a remarkably high perspective. And I asked Joseph Gway if that was shot using a drone. It was a drone. You know, when I came onto the project with Tara, I really wanted to put a couple moments in there that we could really make someone feel, okay, we're not on a stage. We're not in the theater. We're in this you know, we're in a surreal world that we can take them anywhere. It doesn't have to be shot the way traditionally we see ballet pieces made and, and put out there. So 
I felt because Charlie's in mean this version of Earth and maybe the next place that we go to that I really wanted to use a drone somewhere and make you feel this lifting moment at some point of the piece. I, I wasn't really sure where that would happen. And then we finally found the right moment to put it in there where you, it's not a camera trick, you know, it's you feel his emotions lift up into the sky with him. So I felt it was the right moment. Brian Wallenberg helped us to capture that drone footage. It was uh, wonderful to have him on the team for that. Joseph, have you worked with drone photography before? I have a little bit, but typically, you know, people use a drone shot as like an establishing shot to sort of show the the scenery that you're about to go to or, you know, to, to set up a, a following of a car drive. So it's not used to translate an emotion ever. And that's why this time I felt like, how can we lift the audience along with John in his process? So I, when we filmed it, we were just so excited while we were looking through this little screen on the drone. And then on top of it, John was such a trooper because he had a drone flying a few inches from his face with blades <laughs> that, we're, that we're taking 500 feet in the sky and bringing right back down on top of him and having to stop it at the exact point before it does Re reach his face and for him to have that the beauty and energy that he had in, in, in his expression and not show any level of fear that it was we did maybe four takes of it oh my it was really beautiful similarly i mean along the topic of working with dancers for film when they are far more accustomed to performing in front of a live audience what was it like to direct these dancers? Uh, from what I've seen, most, most of the time when they capture ballet, you know, you have two or three cameras. You have one at the top of the theater, one on stage right, stage left, and they film it in a very stagnant manner. And as strange as it is, I've been struggling with a, a bad back injury, so I can't physically hold a camera for that long. And sometimes in life, our limitations actually open up these wonderful opportunities. And so I put a camera on skateboard wheels and put it on the stage with the dancers. One of my great friends, Cody Collins, who also is a camera operator, we made a similar rig for him. And then Tara would have us in a headset and we became a part of the choreography. So it was really spectacular because instead of you know, giving these typical angles that you would see, we were actually constantly moving with the cameras. You won't notice it that much because the way it was lit, you know, you don't really see the horizon a lot. And we're floating in and out of all the dance moves to make them feel really emotionally big at times and then give it room to breathe. And it was very, very challenging to not accidentally run into a dance or run into the other cameraman <laughs> because we, we were a part of the choreography. Thanks to Tara talking to us through the headset, she was able to direct us in which areas everyone was moving as, as it was taking and, place. Uh, and Ben Rawson helped us with the gorgeous lighting that helped kind of soften those, <laughs> the, yeah. Bound, yeah. the boundaries, yeah. yeah. His lighting is beautiful. I love the idea of a skateboard as a camera dolly. You know, maybe Steven Spielberg, oh, no. Aaron Sorkin is the one who has people 
running and racing down the halls and so many scenes. Oh, yeah. He's the one who likes those camera dollies. Maybe he'd <laughs> like your skateboard idea. Well, Cody, he originally was a steady cam operator back in the days of film. So he was he's used to carrying all this gear and making moves that typically are very hard to do. And so at times he was holding the camera physically, like almost strapped to him. And other times we had this this really funny rig that every day would change. Every day more wheels got added to it, more steering columns and capabilities and different monitors. And so it, it almost became like a little robot dancer on the set. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the beauty of this piece. It is about dimension. It is about this really powerful story. But at the end, the end of the day, it still is a spectacular dance film. It has moments that you just get lost in on stage with the performance and I want to make sure that people remember that it is still a dance piece and they will they will be blown away with what they witness and what these dancers have made and what Terrace choreographed. of the film is this very large Victorian style home and what I found interesting was the contrast between the very sleek renovated contemporary interior of the house compared to the exterior which looked very worn down with chipped paint. Is there symbolism there with the father or am I overthinking it? No, you're not overthinking. And I'm so thankful that you see those details. <laughs> That's really wonderful. No, it's, it's absolutely a metaphor. What a gorgeous place that we were able to film for the house scenes at uh, Cassie Clark's residence in, in Sparta. Um, it was spectacular and you, you feel the grandness of it. And yet you look closer and you see how certain things are starting to collapse or disintegrate a little bit you walk through the house knowing that there was life in there and fun and memories and things have changed, you know? And so you, you feel that just walking through the house. So it was such a perfect environment for us. Yeah. And the, and the interesting thing with the home is with them living there, you know, there is a point where they want to renovate certain areas of the house to make it livable. But then some of the destruction that's taking place is the beauty of the property. You know, it reminds me too of when, you know, John would be going through the makeup process and how today's society, we're so obsessed with removing these wrinkles and removing our age from ourselves. And, and you forget that that is a part of our story. It's a part of our beauty. It's a part of uh, the journey we're taking in our own lives. The part in the film that really tore me apart was when Charlie, the father, can no longer remember his daughter's name and the impact that has on her. And when we hear the narration, I'm a stranger in this world. I'm a stranger to myself. I thought about my father-in-law, whom I adored. My father died when I was very young, and my husband's father, 
I was so fortunate to have him in my life as long as I did. He was a university professor who loved to read. And the first thing he noticed about his condition was that he could no longer read. But one could see that he still comprehended some things. And that part in this film, where the character of the poet expresses that he's a stranger in this world and a stranger to himself, it just depicted the agony from the perspective of the person suffering from dementia. I mean, I was reacting like a loved one who was close, but I was an observer. Right. That was really important for us. That was um, a section that actually was inspired by Andy's music because it was a track that he had written before we started this actual process that wasn't originally in the ballet. It, It found its way back in and he instinctually knew, he's like, I think this track belongs in here. And so the more I listened to it, I said, yeah, it really does. And what this track represents is Charlie's perspective. And for us to have a little bit of empathy for what, what he's actually going through, his reality, that he's not losing his mind, but his mind is changing. And how frustrating and how confusing that could be, you know, when you're a great poet and then, you know, this, his character has had an amazing career in life as a person that knows how to put together words and all of a sudden it's starting to you know slip from his fingertips the words themselves so we we wanted to have a chance to to see what it's like from his perspective how lost one might feel you know and yet he conveys to us through the narration i can't remember your name but i know that i love you to his daughter oh it It's breathtaking. I am a stranger to myself, and my existence wanders over my substance. What are these thoughts that come and go like a flock of doves? Actually, you know, at, at a moment we didn't know if it should be in there because we thought it would be too much. It would be too strong. And Tara just decided you have to go for it. You have to take people the whole journey and let them, even if it's heartbreaking, it has to be the truth. And it, it is it, during the editing process, we watched this story probably 120 times and every single time it would just choke us up it was it's amazing I, I actually love how that one line which happened to be inspired by you know actual interviews with Alzheimer patients and their loved ones so I kind of just adapted some words for that particular line but it was you know that was all 
from actual interviews. I love how in that one line, it, it does break your heart. And yet it's so beautiful too, because really what we remember from that line is the, the love is there. The love is remembered, you know, the identity might be, <laughs> you know, starting to become fuzzy of where it's coming from, who belongs to, what name does it, you know, who's saying what, but the actual feeling of being loved and of loving is, is there. So we started by talking about what an unlikely topic dementia seemed to be as inspiration for the piece. Ultimately, Tara, why was dance a great way to approach such a difficult topic? Uh, Dance represents to me what's possible. It represents freedom. And it represents kind of the, the intersection between our kind of the humanitations of our human physical body and what's unlimited about us, you know, our spirit and our energy and what keeps on going. So I didn't know how else to express it, but through dance, actually. Um, at first I thought, how am I going to? And then I, once I started rolling along with it, I realized, wow, that's, I, don't, I wouldn't know, know another way to do it better, actually. Tara Lee resident choreographer of Terminus Modern Ballet Theater, and her partner, the multimedia artist Joseph Gway. Their new film, The Poet, can be streamed now through July 10th. You can learn more about it on our website, wabe.org slash citylight. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Honey on the Page is a treasury of Yiddish children's literature. The book was edited and translated by Emory University professor Miriam Udell. She is with us now via Zoom. Miriam Udell, welcome to City Lights. Thank you. I am an almost daily listener, and it is a thrill to be with you, Lois. Thank you. Well, your book contains children's literature, though the stories and poems you've selected seem ideal for reading together as a family and equally enjoyable for adults to read alone. I was hoping you would tell us about your ongoing focus group for this volume. <laughs> well, the, the focus group consists of my three sons, who are now 16, um, just on the cusp of turning 13 and four and a half. And they have been the the testers for a lot of these stories. If, if a story or a poem could hold their interest or draw them in, then I knew I had something that would speak to other children and other families as well. Sweet. I love how you honor your first Hebrew school teacher with the title of the book. How did she win over her students? The title of the book refers to a 
longstanding tradition in the Jewish education of little boys who attended very informal schools known as cheders or chadorim, that would be the plural, um, which literally just means a room. And on the first day of class in, the, in this cheder system, the instructor would smear honey on the page of whatever primer the students were going to be using to learn the Hebrew, which is the same as the Yiddish alphabet or olive bays. And when I started my own Jewish education in a much more co-educational, suburban, modern setting, our teacher wanted to do something similar, um, but she didn't want the mess of dealing with a lot of honey in a, in a school classroom. So she, she had little chocolates and she would come around to each desk and we would open our primers and she would spill out this little cascade of chocolates and we would eat those and she explained that that was going to make our learning sweet. And indeed it did. Oh, I love it. She had your chocolate. The scope of topics in this collection is vast. The book contains 47 stories and poems. Would you talk about how you arranged the categories? Sure. So this is the first really comprehensive volume of its kind. It tries to make Yiddish children's literature in some sort of representation of its totality available for the English language reader. And so I decided that I would organize it thematically. And I, I wanted to find a thematic mode of organization that would be authentic and feel true to the history of this literature, but that would also be um, beckoning and inviting for contemporary readers. And what I hit upon was a scheme that I saw in a lot of anthologies from a hundred years ago, which is to move from the most distinctively and singularly Jewish content toward more universal content. And so that's why I started with Jewish holidays, history and heroes, and moved on to the kinds of folk tales, wonder tales, tales of fools, allegories and fables that we might find in any culture and its children's literature, and then on to the more universal experiences of going to school and the things that we learn outside of school in life's classroom. Hmm. When people think of Yiddish literature, theater, or music, we associate the culture with Eastern Europe. Let's talk about the writers you include in Honey on the Page and how you extend the map with contributors in this book. Sure. So this is a literature that begins in Eastern Europe. I think we have to go back and say a word about what Yiddish is. It is a fusion language um, whose primary components are German and Hebrew, but that also comes to contain a lot of Slavic elements, a stratum of romance elements that's very small but very old within Yiddish, and then comes to be influenced by wherever Yiddish speakers migrated. So today that means that there are um, English, American English and British English elements in Yiddish, that there's Hebrew in Yiddish. And so it's really a 
kind of a portable linguistic homeland that moves with the Jews through the enormous migrations of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And we see that reflected in the authorship of these tales. We also see it reflected in the settings of these tales, um, many of which, of course, are in either a very realistic or a kind of enchanted, fantastical Eastern Europe, but that also come to include Central European cities, New York City, um, Trinidad, Havana, Buenos Aires, Tel Aviv, even Casablanca, Morocco is included. So it's really a, a book that takes us all over the world in terms of both the sites of publication and the settings of these stories and poems. There has been a great deal written about how children use stories and folk tales to understand difficult topics. Is making sense of persecution a recurring theme of these stories and poems? Absolutely. And I think that these authors were really progressive or ahead of their time in understanding that it's often best to speak very directly to children about difficult topics, about violence, about persecution, and to show them what is in their power to control. So a lot of these stories speak on one level to children and on a whole other level to adults. As a dog lover, I was drawn to Lapsic, the stories of a clever pup. How does this author bring in the politics and social movements of the time? Sure. So Haver Paver is the pen name of an author named Gershon Einbinder, who was a very committed leftist. And it's published in 1935 as a way to really educate school children in this comprehensive vision for social justice that includes economic justice, racial equality, and to a lesser degree, a kind of proto-feminism, or at least attention to the idea that girls should be educated and have opportunities in parallel with their brothers. And so, Lobzik, I call him leftist lassie because he is <laughs> the uh, focal point of every chapter and he's always the hero of the day and he always behaves within the range of what would be realistically possible for a dog to do. So he barks and he wags his tail and he licks people and he is very, very intelligent. Um, and he communicates, but he doesn't talk. We never sort of cross that line. We're, we're good social realists. And so in the first chapter that I include, Lobzik gets adopted from the subway where he's been abandoned during the Depression because the, the family that had him in their charge could no longer feed him. And he gets adopted by Betel the operator, and that's Betel the sewing machine operator, and his wife, Molly, and their two children, Mulek the brother and Rivke the sister. And they are a kind of ideal 
sitcom family before sitcoms. It's really the era of radio plays. And every chapter has a self-contained plot with a rising action and a conflict and a climax where Lobzik somehow saves the day and then falling action and a, a denouement and it's all wrapped up neatly with a bow. But if it's, if it's all right, I want to just tell you about a chapter that I did not include in Honey on the Page that has most explicitly to do with race and racial justice. Because Lobzik is a dog, he can kind of have it both ways. He can be preternaturally intelligent and kind, but he can also, on the other hand, be just a dog who's literally inhuman. And at one point, Mulek has his two best friends over, Jaime and Noah, or Noyach in the Yiddish, and Noyach happens to be an African-American boy who is a close friend of Mulek's from public school. Um, he attends public school in the morning and he and his sister go to Yiddish school in the afternoon. And one day, for no good reason, Labzik bites Noyach for no other reason than he has darker skin than the other kids on the block. And this rocks the children's world. This is the greatest possible offense. And imitating the grown-ups, they decide that they not only need to punish Lobzik right away, but they need to convene a tribunal of all of the children and to put Lobzik on trial. And Lobzik's sentence in this tribunal is a full week of ostracism during which nobody cuddles him, nobody pets him, nobody even talks to him because he has to be taught not to be a weiser chauvinist, which is the Yiddish term, literally means a white chauvinist, and it's the Yiddish term at that time for racism. And so by the end of the story, Lobzik learns that he has done a terrible thing and it must never be repeated. And he says at the end of the story, we, we have an omniscient narrator who's able to grant us access to Lobzik's thoughts. And he says at the end of the story that he would never again bite a black child, even for all of the, an entire houseful of lem chops. And so we know that Lobzik has learned his lesson and the children reading the story in 1935 have also hopefully learned their lesson. With their universal themes, the stories and poetry in Honey on the Page are not meant exclusively for Jewish children. Miriam, ultimately, why is it important to restore this body of work? I've been reading a lot lately about the idea that in their literature, children need mirrors and they need windows. In other words, children need to see their own experience reflected back to them. And they also need to gain a good, clear view into other cultures and other subcultures. And I think that this is particularly important in the United States right now. Um, it's really important at this political moment to connect with the indisputable fact that we are and we have been 
a nation of immigrants, a nation that has been so enriched by all of the different voices, languages, and subcultures that have come together to make the great American salad. Emory University professor Miriam Udell, editor and translator of Honey on the Page, speaking about the beauty and enrichment of America as a nation of immigrants. Udell's book is a collection of Yiddish children's stories. You can learn more about it on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll go into the woods with the new musical production from City Springs Theatre Company. City Lights senior producer is Kim Droves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Archived interviews and shows are on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Thank you for listening to member-supported WABE Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.